0: Today on The Late Edition, we'll be looking at the road ahead. First, we see how the European Union is discussing issuing passports for those who've been vaccinated. Might this be one way to help get the world moving? Next on our tour, we'll talk about the chorus of musicians piping up to pillory the UK government's withdrawal agreement, specifically its lack of provision for musical acts heading to the continent. And Joy of Joys will also be analysing the ongoing impact of Brexit, but we'll finish up in the capable, if somewhat clammy, hands of our New York correspondent. He's taken a sideways look at the big news of the week in the US. Next up, the late edition here on Monocle 24. (music) Hello, and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday, the 22nd of January, and I'm Josh Fennett here in Studio One at Midori House. And joining me to discuss the news, hour are our fearless leader and editor in chief, Andrew Tuck, and Monocle 24's head of radio, and a man under light, but by all accounts pleasant sedation, Tom Edwards. <laughs> Um, Tom, I saw you uh, administering some fist-sized painkillers earlier. Uh, Is there <laughs> anything we should be concerned about?
1: No, I had a sharp pain in my neck. I don't know what to read into that. It could be one of these strange, literal or metaphorical uh, conditions. I was going to say, it's that's a very, very, very
0: metaphorical thing. And, and, um, At least and it's only
1: in my neck, I guess I should I say. Saying, yeah, that's,
0: that's probably a good uh, thing. And um, Andrew, it's Friday, which means you've been up with the lark jotting your column for the Saturday Minute uh, newsletter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what can you tell us? Uh, you don't think I actually type it on a Saturday morning, for three seconds before it goes out. Um, well, I've I've written about it's about cities and about kind of sleeping cities and about seeing them close up because uh, because gyms have been closed. I've been taking to running with increasing gusto, but the problem is I don't know when to stop these days. So I've I've been going out. Someone who who rarely ran at all. I, I've been heading out and almost not coming back. I think I'm going to end up at some port or something one day. But anyway, it's all going fine. But it's about it's about cities and it it pulls in. All sorts of things. It, I think. It, I think it's reasonably fun. I'm not sure it's as jolly as it normally is, but um, you, know, you can't be happy every week.
0: Sounds a bit like you're covering for being caught down the docks. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I ran to the port. I don't, I don't know what. I, I was asking for help. I was asking people for help. And um, Tom, you know Andrew to be a rather modest man, but can, can, can we kind of out him for how far he's actually running? It's it's, it's become quite a uh, quite an obsession. Your new uh, your new athletic prowess. Isn't well,
1: he, he's through. He's sort of very modestly, mm-hmm. but very definitively mm-hmm. breasted the tape of the 10 kilometer distance and it's onward and upwards from there I, what can I say Andrew he's coming close I'm going to say he's, he's close to half marathon distance just for a routine run well, if you see a blur passing <laughs> on, uh, on, on the Millennium Bridge, you'll know that
0: our Editor-in-Chief is out in force. Um, we're going to start today with the European Union's plans for containing the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, EU leaders have been meeting to discuss next steps and the all-important rollout of vaccines, but also on the agenda were the issues of travel for those people who've been inoculated and the thorny notion of mandatory jabs as well. Well, earlier we spoke to Sarah Wheaton, the Chief Policy Correspondent for... Politico Europe on Monocle 24. She explained some of the grit and nuance behind these simple sounding suggestions.
3: Mandatory vaccination has been used for things like measles in heavily vaccine skeptic countries like France and Italy, but it's seen as a very extreme political step. We saw the Greek prime minister say, Look, I know that maybe this discussion is, is kind of premature, but let's just start laying the groundwork. But the other issue is, you know, some people cannot. Be vaccinated for health reasons? And does that mean that they need to go around telling everybody about their whole medical history in order to travel? The other thing from my perspective is this is a really premature conversation. A lot of, of the tourism industry is driven by younger, healthier people who are hopping uh, easyJet flights and Ryanair flights to hotspots. And those are the people who are going to be vaccinated last. So indeed, this On a practical level, this probably isn't going to be an issue anytime
0: soon. Sarah Wheaton, chief policy correspondent for Politico Europe there, speaking on The Globalist on Monocle 24. I think um, I don't think it's just young people that travel personally. And I think maybe older people will want to know those answers as well. So I'm not disagreeing with her. But there is certainly a lot to discuss. And it's an important issue. Andrew, interesting to see how the Greek Prime Minister has taken a bit of a lead on these discussions. Obviously, Greece is very dependent on tourism, but um, you actually had the good fortune of meeting and interviewing him recently with our editorial director Tyler Brule uh, for a story that's in our out now February issue. What do you make of the Greek Prime Minister's kind of gung ho approach of trying to set out a bit of a, a, a bit of a roadmap, or we we'll call it a flight plan, for for for, for getting moving in the future? Because it's my sense that we kind of need something
2: to look forward to, right? Well, Greece. Is very dependent on tourism. It's it's it was lucky last year that it had pretty low numbers during that that interregnum in the summer, and it managed to open up for tourism in a very careful way. I, I actually went there for, for my holiday in the summer. Hard to think that holidays actually existed this, this moment, but it was interesting that they had good good measures in place. They had track and trace. You had to register before your arrival, and you were certainly asked to show this kind of track and trace barcode wherever you went. The hotels I stayed in, you, there was no, no socialising indoors. You had to wear masks wherever you went. So they, they were they were pretty good about it. But even so, yeah, they, they need to make sure that happens again this summer because they need the cash. They need that. They, they need to keep their people employed. And even though the economy is doing a lot better, there's still many people who are actually really only make their money during those summer months and then live off you know, the income during the winter. So. A difficult moment for Greece. But it's interesting that the Spanish prime minister is is quoted as saying that he will not open up Spain for tourism until the the majority of the the vulnerable and the seniors have had their injections and they've been vaccinated. So there you have another country which is is more cautious about it because they, they did have terrible numbers. So it depends what your background is here. And then, interestingly, I was just, uh, before we came into the studio, I I was messaging with a a friend who lives in Palma de Mallorca. And he was saying that today they've had um, quite big demonstrations in the city uh, by hospitality workers, so uh, people who work as bar staff in hotels, because there is no tourism. And when they hear the Spanish prime minister saying, actually, we might just turn off the tap, full stop, Again, an island that you know. Yes, it has some agriculture and grows some n- n- nice food and makes wine and all sorts of things. There's a, some very good design industry players, but that's not enough to keep that place going. So you have these places around the Med that are going to be brutally, brutally broken if there is not a, some opening up this summer. But I don't know. I you know I I I haven't been the best person to be within the office this week. I, I've found the appetite for confronting these issues, the appetite for opening up dissipating. I think leaders just don't want to go back through numerous lockdowns. And I worry, I I worry that there is no appetite to get moving again. I think people are so exhausted that what what does it matter if we don't travel anymore? What if it matters if we can't go and see our friends and relatives? So uh, I'm a bit gloomy about it, actually. I've, I've got a feeling that in the end, many of these European leaders, they see their economies kind of keeping going at the moment and they, 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 they don't give a damn about things like travel. That's, that's the last thing on their list.
0: And it's important to mention that our hit
2: play themed February issue is on <laughs> newsstands now. Um, well, no, can, let's just come back to that because this, this, this is for these people. This is for these people who are in positions of power to say, look, hold on, you have to hit that button at some point. You cannot wait back while people lose their education, when they lose their job opportunities, when they lose their houses, when they lose their mental health. Yes, we know about the physical health uh, dangers at the moment and we must do everything we can to control those. But unless you press the other button, then you'll lose a generation of culture. You lose you know, a generation of 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 invention, of, of, of allowing young people to rise up through society. We know one of the biggest terrors at this moment is keeping kids in lockdown and out of education. Every single day you do that, you rip away life chances from these kids. And you, especially kids who are growing up in poverty or, or in deprivation, you're guaranteeing that they will stay in that position. So yeah, you know, it... it it may seem frivolous to say "hit play" because it's not about just going out and play. It's hitting play on people's lives and their possibilities to actually navigate something important in this time. And that's when you hear these lazy old leaders and the, the, these tiresome conversations and this inability to kind of grip, get to grips with what's going on. That's what they're doing that, that, that is 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 also going to dog us. And unless they they come together with some ambition, then you then you fret. But you, you fret in, in a big way at the moment because. The 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 energy to do something new is just lacking. And Tom, we've been uh, we've had heated
0: conversations all day uh, throughout the office about the ambivalence of some, particularly media coverage, where mm. people bemoan the troubles that Andrew has uh, drawn attention to, of taking children out of school, of shutting down entire economies, of taking away people's uh, jobs, livelihoods, and chance to earn a living. Um, and this pollyanna idea that you can, you know, you can, you can also just stay locked down and keep everyone safe the whole time. You, you got a bit woozy towards the end of the discussion, I think because of the painkillers, but um, <laughs> surely ba- vaccine passports, to come back to Sarah's point, are at least an idea, a positive idea, a way of beginning to, as Andrew says, make positive changes for the economy and for people and to begin getting things moving again rather than just shutting down indefinitely.
1: Uh, absolutely. I think it, it flows from what Andrew said, that people have a right to be offered a sense of uh, not 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 optimism, you know, nobody wants to be misled by their leaders that this is going to be over uh, any time soon, or that it's not going to get worse before it gets better. But you have to offer people some sort of notional sense that there is a path to do exactly what Andrew has been been talking about and reverse some of this. And I think the problem we've got now is that. Even when a small uh, victory is, is, is achieved and, you know, the, the, the rapid rollout of vaccines. And I know the story today is that the supply chain is now breaking down and countries aren't going to have enough. And how long does the uh, protection they offer last? But that turnaround was rapid. It was extraordinary. And. Um, the lockdown and the beginning of the vaccine seems to have say in this country you know brought the r number beneath 1 for the first time in in 6 weeks you have to at least allow even media outlets to to present a piece of positive news and say should we continue on this course then perhaps by may we can look at this thing and by july we can look at the the other we're in we're in a, a bizarre uh moment and i think you're right to make that point about the media Everything is presented as being part of the same grimly uh denuded landscape. And you cannot expect people to continue to, to live that way. Um you also cannot subject people who don't even have a, a voice or a stake in the matter, like Andrew said, kids who are being who don't have enough food to eat because the schools aren't open. It's simply not reasonable to just say we just have to wait and have to wait and have to wait. Um and you know, look, I I I I, I laughed at your remark about hit play, but it, there's something very serious about it, and unless people have that conversation, they will lose people's compliance. That's the other flip side, and then we get nowhere. So you, you have to balance caution and responsibility with looking after people's you know, mental health and their anxiety and their expectations that you have to deliver something better than a worst-case scenario, week after week after week.
0: And I'd like to stay on this topic, if I may. Uh, Serious going, though it is, I mentioned at the top of the show that one source of strain between the UK and the EU particularly has been the uncertain future for musical artists working across between the UK and the continent. We've seen news this week that Glastonbury Festival, obviously um, a great old rollicking time in a field and uh, lots of fun to be had, but also uh, a thing that supports many musical artists and an important part of the cultural landscape in the UK These things have not been sorted out. Um, Andrew, how can we get people singing off the same hymn sheet and and find some balance between the things that bring us joy in the world and the things that provide jobs in the music and entertainment industry and just keeping people safe indefinitely?
2: Well, again, it's interesting that, that... You want people to have some hope and ambition and to put some things in the diary. I think the truth is that all these things are going to be cancelled, probably uh, certainly the first part of the summer, maybe the later part of the summer... We know that last summer that something about the heat, something about us being outdoor kind of helped dissipate the virus and, and maybe there'll be some smaller things that are possible at the end of the year. I think we need to see nimbleness by organisers. Glastonbury is complicated because it's such a mega stage. It's so much coordination. There's, there's so much logistics involved in it. But some of these smaller festivals that happen here in the UK, which are um, which are not that much more than a, a stage and come and pitch your, pitch your tent, then maybe those those things can go ahead so whether it's like having a package sent from europe now which seems to be impossible whether it's getting monocle magazine actually through customs which used to be like uh, something that took like 20 minutes now takes days apparently all of these things are are dragging us down and that's that's the same thing for this music thing so if i was glastonbury i would call it you know Le glastonbury and i'd move it to south of france and do it there because it would be so much easier Well, it's tough, isn't it? There haven't been enough um, scientific experiments into the effect
0: of horse tranquilizers and cheap beer on on social distancing when, you know, when conducted in uh, a field. Um, We're going to stick with the EU now, um, as much fun as it's been so far. Uh, This week, uh, there's been a little bad-humoured badinage over a UK decision not to recognise the EU mission to the UK um, in the way that other sovereign nations diplomats are recognised. Tom, the UK seemed happy with this agreement when the EU foreign service was set up in 2010. It's not 2010. We're not in the uh, EU anymore. Is this a reasonable thing for the UK government to do, or is it just a bit of playing politics?
1: Yeah, well, it's, I, it's not. It's almost not even playing politics. It's 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 more petty than that, if you can imagine it. Um, this is a, a, I don't know what the opposite of sort of saber rattling is. Um, it's sort of you know um, thumbing one's chin at, at, at a rival. It's so it's so it's so pathetic. Uh, it's posturing by the UK. It's some sort of weird virtue signalling, and it demonstrates precisely the kind of disconnect with the rest of the world um, that we'd actually we sort of. Uh, celebrated the passing of stateside this week, because I know we're going to talk about this in a a moment, but the idea that, you know, the US under Biden can return to multilateralism, they can turn to extending hands across the ocean, not being insular, not being uh, sort of, you know, introverted and withdrawn from the world stage. And here we are, Dominic Rab. you know, it's just it's an empty gesture. And I think it's all the more Inexplicable when you look at the government's failure to deliver for British people and British businesses the kinds of assurances they wanted. And Andrew was right. That could be that you end up paying 100% extra for a, pack, a consignment that comes in from Europe because they haven't figured out how to you know, f- do the, 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 the tax deals on home delivery. Um, There's something like sticking to the caps on relief for certain uh, businesses in this country because we're adhering to the pre-agreed EU state aid regs which we clearly could now uh, almost make a make a point of I- ignoring. So the British government is not covering itself in glory and I think it's because the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Next on Monocle 24 um, next
0: up on the show a treat of sorts. Uh, here's our very own New York correspondent Henry Reese Sheridan to offer his backwards take on the big news of the week. Joe Biden's inauguration on Wednesday
4: in case you missed it. Take it away Henry. New York is obsessed with itself. It's possible to live here and not hear anything about what's going on elsewhere for months on end. And the only thing that New Yorkers pay less attention to than what's going on abroad is what's going on in America outside of New York. New Yorkers have their heads in the ground like so many coastal ostriches. But occasionally, a significant development in national politics has the effect of a stampede of rhinoceroses on the savannah, sending tremors through the arid topsoil. This coaxes the New York Yorkstriches to pull their heads out of the ground and pay attention. The inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris this week was one of those events. Who are these people? My wife, a native New Yorker, screamed at the computer screen as I streamed the ceremony. And what am America? She added, uncomprehendingly, her grammar cracking under stress. I explained to her that some of the people on the screen were from New York. This seemed to calm her down. But which ones? And who
1: were they? Gracious and merciful God, At this sacred time, we come before you in need, indeed on our knees. Help us under our new president to reconcile the people of our land, restore our dream and invest it with peace and justice and the joy that is the overflow of love. To the glory of your name forever,
4: amen. The first New Yorker to appear on the inauguration stage was Father Leo O'Donovan. He's a Jesuit priest born in the far Rockaway neighbourhood of Queens. O'Donovan has a long-standing relationship with Joe Biden. As the president of Georgetown University, he invited Biden to give a lecture about the importance of faith in political life. It was the first time Biden had addressed the topic publicly, and Biden said he'd never worked so hard on a speech in his whole life. O'Donovan also presided over the funeral mass of Biden's son Beau in 2015. The next New Yorker to perform at the inauguration was another Catholic dignitary. Stefani Joanne Angelina Germanotta, aka Lady Gaga, was born in Manhattan and attended the Upper East Side All Girls Catholic School, Convent of the Sacred Heart. At the inauguration, Gaga sang the national anthem into a golden microphone while wearing an extremely large golden brooch shaped like a dove. Being a New York Catholic isn't the only thing Lady Gaga has in common with Father Leo O'Donovan. Like O'Donovan, Gaga has a long-standing working relationship with Biden, having worked with him on a campaign against sexual assault on college campuses when Mr Biden was vice president. Also, both Lady Gaga and Father O'Donovan have stated on the record that they want to, and I quote, inject gay culture into the mainstream. The real motivation is to just turn the world gay. End quote. That was a joke. Only one of them has said that. Okay, next, New Yorker.
3: Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear... I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear... ...that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution. So help me God. So help okay. me God. Congratulations. Oh,
4: Not Kamala Harris, who's from California, but the person swearing her into office, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Justice Sotomayor grew up in Puerto Rican communities in the Bronx and self-identifies as New-Orican, a New York Puerto Rican. She is the first Hispanic and first Latina member of the Supreme Court. And it wasn't the first time she's administered the vice-presidential oath. She did the honors for Biden himself in 2013. The final New Yorker to take to the stage during the swearing-in ceremony was also a New Ulrikan from the Bronx. was Jenny from the block, Jennifer Lopez. She sang America the beautiful and this land is your land, just before Biden was sworn in as president, all while wearing suffragette white. By the time I had explained all this, my wife had completely lost interest and left the room. In fact, she completely lost interest and left the room before I'd even started. But at least you got to hear my edifying rundown of the New Yorkers who graced the stage at Biden's inauguration. And Biden has many more New Yorkers up his sleeve. His cabinet is positively crawling with them, from Manhattan-raised Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, to Brooklyn-born Janet Yellen, who will become the first female Treasury Secretary if she's confirmed. I hope their presence compensates for New Yorkers recently losing their most powerful representative in national politics since Theodore Roosevelt, Donald J. Trump.
0: Uh, that was our New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, clattering on about something or other. Uh, but as Henry did uh, mention, and what won't have escaped our eagle-eared listeners uh, over this week. Joe Biden has enjoyed his first few days in the White House and struck a rather more constructive tone than the fire and fury of his haphazard predecessor. Beyond a flurry of executive orders signed this week, Biden needs to re-establish some unity and he wants to build bridges with his Republican adversaries to get anything done. Let's hear from Brian Class. He's Associate Professor in Global Politics at UCL and a columnist for The Washington Post.
5: Biden is often viewed as the man for the moment uh, for a couple reasons. One is that he's extremely experienced, right? when when Biden first came to Washington, in the early 1970s, he was serving alongside senators who had served under Franklin Delano Roosevelt previously, right, I mean, this is a person who knows Washington intimately, understands its rules and regulations and how to get stuff done. But there's also the empathic aspect of this, which is a sharp contrast with Donald Trump, where Biden has known loss personally repeatedly in his life, understands how to speak to people about loss in a way that doesn't sugarcoat things, but also understands that you have to acknowledge suffering and he's going to be walking a tightrope in washington between the unifying uh, desire that he has to be, you know, a, a person who brings people together juxtaposed against the democratic desire to hold the trump administration accountable. And I think that one of the the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. And I think that's probably the way uh, that that squares the circle. Republicans won't love it. But uh, I think that when you have events like you did January 6th, when you have callous disregard for the loss of thousands of Americans, accountability does need to be part of the equation.
0: And that was the voice of Brian Klaas, he was speaking on Today's Globalist on Monocle 24. Um, Andrew. Big week in America. Um, what have you made of Biden's first moves as president? It's a position he's waited his entire life to do. He's run twice and not got there. He is there now. He's a 78-year-old man. He's an establishment figure. Um, how much of what he's done so far has struck the right tone for you?
2: Well, climate and climate change is, is obviously one of the biggest issues that is, is dogging us. And the previous presidency, thumbed knows it. They 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 pressed ahead with all exploration projects that seemed to endanger the wilderness in the U.S. They pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. They they were not engaged with the the, the conversation at the U.N. level, and the, their the, their whole objective was to you know push ahead in an economic way, but not really countenance any of this was even true. I think his engagement just with those issues is is of of utmost importance to the future of you know of all of us but certainly to future generations that there will be something to inherit so i think those are good you know i'm an internationalist I, i'm a believer in a in a globalized world done well uh and he is as well so i think all of those those, those things are good look He is a a consensus politician and there is a calmness about him which may not cut it at every moment that we have ahead of us and it will be interesting to see, I don't know, whether age does play against him. I'm not particularly sure it it will at the moment. He has an amazing team around him. He's a a, a politician that people like and he's been able to bring people like Janet Yellen forward. So there's there's, there's great people who have come to his side. So he has a strong team. And the other temptation, I guess, for all, all all of the people who are going to be in this administration, is to unravel everything that Donald Trump and his team did. And there, when we come back to some of the foreign policy measures, you know, the the, the question of how you deal with China, uh, how you you try to negotiate, which no one has ever done, a, a peace in the Middle East, you know, that Trump did manoeuvre some things quite interestingly there, and I think it would be difficult for for biden to completely you know repudiate everything that's gone with the previous administration so on the international side well done let's see what happens on the foreign policy measures and will a quiet voice be enough to unite people you hope but it's going to take more than that it's going to take actual alleviating of poverty and of bringing up communities where again as we talked earlier on where life chances have, have seemingly vanished well joe biden if you're listening. Good luck. You've got a
0: lot on. Um, but sadly, that's all the time we have on today's show. Many thanks to our studio guests, Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards. I'm Josh Fennett here in London. Thanks also to our studio managers, Sam Impey and Louis Allen, and to our producer in Milan, Ed Stocker. Thank you very much, Ed. The Late Edition returns on Monday. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend.
3: Bye. Bye.